Very Bad Wizards is a podcast with a philosopher, my dad, and a psychologist, Dave Pizarro, having an informal discussion about issues in science and ethics. Please note that the discussion contains bad words that I'm not allowed to say, and knowing my dad, some very inappropriate jokes. You say it's real, but what even is reality? Yeah, who knows? We don't even know if we're in this room. We could be in a turtle's dream in outer space. The Greatest Boss has spoken! Pay no attention to that man behind the curtain! Who are you? Who are you? A very bad man. I'm a very good man. Welcome to Very Bad Wizards. I'm Tamler Summers from the University of Houston. Dave, it's Halloween on Monday. What's your costume going to be? <laughs> I'm David Pizarro from Cornell University. You know, I rarely dress up. Like, I'm kind of a, a Scrooge McDuck of, uh, <laughs> of Halloween. But not actually but, dressed as Scrooge But McDuck. not as Scrooge <laughs> um, But this year, I'm, I just might. I don't know if I have anything to go to. But uh, my friend Rachel sent me um, a blue wig and told me that I should dress up as Rick from Rick and Morty, one of my favorite cartoons. Yeah. Um, And he has just crazy blue hair and a lab coat. And I think I might actually be able to pull it off. Um, I'm I'm just old (laughs) enough that I could be an old man for Halloween by just putting on a wig. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> right, you don't have to like get all fancy with the makeup and add the wrinkles <laughs> or anything like that. Exactly. I usually though like uh, it's like I ha- I really hate dressing up. Like I don't know. I, I do I don't too. Know why? I, yeah. My family dressed me up as the wizard in Wizard of Oz last year, and we had because our neighborhood is kind of big for Halloween, and so we had a speaker system set up and. I I was like behind this big curtain, you know, I would sort of say, you dare demand candy from the wizard and, you know, (laughs) through this like booming microphone (laughs) and all the little kids would want to see me behind the curtain. And and uh, so that was fun. But normally I'm with you. I don't this this year, though, I think this might scare the kids even more. I'm going to dress as slutty David Hume. I mean, you mean just David Hume? <laughs> yeah, right. That's <laughs> kind of re- it's just redundant. I prefer the destruction of the world to the pricking of my little finger, scratching of my little finger. But you can spank me all you want. <laughs> <laughs> I, and I definitely prefer the ball gag. <laughs> Fifty shades uh, of sentiments. You know, when I was a kid growing up, m- my family was so religious that um, Halloween was kind of like shunned by my church as potentially satanic so the way that we would get around it is my mom would dress me up as like a bible character (laughs) isn't (laughs) that gonna make you more of the prey for (laughs) maybe that's the root of me not caring much for halloween Uh, my dad (laughs) used to tell me that also like it was bad i think the, the jews shouldn't celebrate halloween because um 
it was uh, they used to set dogs out on the Jews at hell. <laughs> on the Jews, yeah. yeah. You guys are responsible for all of the. But it's like if you're a kid, dogs. you're like, oh, okay, oh, that's. Wow, I'm sorry to hear that. That's horrible. <laughs> and I'm gonna go get some candy now, though. If that's okay. <laughs> I know it's like yeah. a b- huge incentive to like fuck religion. <laughs> like, yeah. So uh, speaking of Halloween, we now are at the point where. Certain students at certain universities start to act up, and then a lot of right-wing, conservative, right-of-center magazines and blogs start um, reacting, maybe overreacting to it. But, you know, the Halloween costume, uh, was it last year? Was it last year, the whole Yale kerfuffle? kerfuffle? Uh, I think so, yeah. 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 (laughs) Um, With your boy... uh, Christakis. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, I think it was. There was this article that I read. I guess it was on Reason, a kind of a libertarian blog or, or, or magazine, online magazine, where I guess the University of Oregon had sent out this notice to all the, to, to the school about how cultural appropriation around Halloween time was bad. Let me, and the, the guy quoted something, an excerpt from this, Again, I d- this is not something that happens at the vast majority of campuses. I, by bringing this up, I am—I just w- I actually wanted to talk to you briefly about what, like, cultural a- appropriation, because it's one of the things that I don't totally get. But anyway, so here's the excerpt. Cultural appropriation is the act of borrowing or using aspects of a culture by another culture, typically a dominant culture. Around the time of Halloween, we often see people dressing as a culture or a character which is offensive and reinforces negative stereotypes. These costumes reinforce racism, sexism, and classism. As active and respectful members of the OSU and the UO community, I guess Oregon Student Union, University of Oregon community, we expect everybody to not engage in cultural appropriation. So this is the one thing from that, you know, not, it's not the one thing, but like I get it when they talk about trigger warnings. And I I borderline get it when they talk about microaggressions, but with the cultural appropriation thing. So, you know, Oberlin with getting mad about, you know, having sushi in their in their dining uh, among their dining services. And the I, 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 I don't like I don't even understand what the what the issue is. And you see in this thing that. You know, people dressing as a culture or a character, which is offensive and reinforces negative stereotypes. I mean, it certainly can do that. And if you dressed up in blackface, like you know, some sort of Sambo character, or like Svarta Peak or something, you know, <laughs> then that w- I could see that that would be. Then it would be Christmas. But <laughs> right, but that's Christmas, first of all. But like just dressing up as people of another culture, that just is, that just is. To me, like what Halloween's all about, there's nothing sort of inherently offensive by appropriating any aspect of another culture or just like borrowing it, which I, is I, what they I, define I, it as. It's borrowing aspects of another culture. Yeah, I mean, I, I just like I think to play the Tamler, I think there's no there's no there there here. Like, I, I actually think that what's go- like what's going on is what these students are trying to say is uh Offensive things are offensive, so don't dress up that way. And the term cultural appropriation has has gotten to be used this way. But I, I, I think what they mean is 
don't dress in blackface or like with a sombrero and a mustache with like you know a couple of six shooters by your side um or maybe don't dress like you know an arab princess um and that's to me like it's I, I think we all understand those rules and and I think it's good advice to try to not offend people but I, so I don't think that what's I, I think this is a, a categorization problem where people who wrote this article in reason are thinking of you know like what my kid can't dress like like Aladdin or something um, without getting g- getting completely like uh, mocked or uh, vilified um, but the, the examples that people that people are thinking of when they think of the the what would be offensive, I think everybody would find offensive. I, I like I don't. I, I think I, this is very different from this. The sushi thing is like clearly like uh, sort of sort of crazy. I mean, there's there's a way in which there's valuing of culture that has to come from actually like doing things like trying out foods. It seems like a ridiculous requirement that an actual Japanese chef make your sushi. Like yeah. then nobody would try sushi, and they might not know whether to value that. But for Halloween costumes, they're in like, Ohio, you know. Yeah, for Halloween costumes, I think I don't know. It's not even to me. It's a matter of taste, really. It's it's I, if you read this as saying like, hey, think about like doing things in poor taste, and if you're not sure, maybe ask somebody. And they're just saying it too strongly because. I don't know. Uh, I, so, I'm not sure. So again, I I would agree with you that this is not a there's not. As the reason says, a war on Halloween. Just like there's no war on Christmas. People right. will manage. People will somehow find the way and the wherewithal to dress I- however they like for Halloween. However, just even what you said, like the Arab princess or the the Mexican with the six-shooter that looks like what? Well, I was thinking actually of Yosemite Sam, if you say the six-shooter. <laughs> but, but whatever it is, like... Number one, I don't totally see the problem with either of those things. And number two, is it the student government's job to send out a a, a, a letter saying that they that this is not I, something that is acceptable? Within I the much community? I much prefer the student unions getting together and sending out an email that says we expect everybody not to engage in this than the administration sending out a letter. Right? I right. mean. Uh, I, I mean, I uh, think no, that that's one, a good point. Right, 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 right. And they're not threatening. I mean, they're not. It's not like they're saying they're just saying, "Don't be racist, sexist, or classist." And you know, uh, like uh, w- whether you like find the the stereotypical Mexican with a mustache like offensive or not, like it's not like of course you wouldn't. Like, that's the point. (laughs) But this is the problem. This is that, like, sort of line. Right. But I don't believe – well, so here's the thing. I think if you polled – maybe we we need the Washington Post to do this poll right now. (laughs) But, I, you know, like, I don't think that's – Donald Trump is probably going to get elected president now that they – just reopened the FBI investigation into they're not worried about some kid in Oregon dressing up like as a stereotypical I, Mexican from a sp- spaghetti western I I, I I I I mean yeah we could get into this whole discussion which is why it's not that interesting to me because it would just be a reiteration of whether or not like a the Cleveland Indians is racist like how many people does it take 
But I think that it's it is interesting that you can't even catch the intuition that somebody would be offended at. Like, well, no, I can catch the, the intuition that some because everyone is offended at something. But, no, but I know. But, but that doesn't for mean you, that it's like it's a blanket that blackface, ban on but, it. But it's clear that like blackface would be offensive, right? Right. There are uh, clear cases on both sides. Right. But you just because you don't see that it's clear. Like that in Houston, my... if you dress up like a Mexican person, like I bet you a whole bunch of people would. <laughs> well, <laughs> like, I don't know. I mean, you should do That's this. That's why we need the the Washington Post. <laughs> no, we need Where you to dress th- up in a stereotypical Mexican outfit and walk around the streets. Well, here Houston. nobody would care. <laughs> we go to a Mexican neighborhood. There are, I, I mean, I, I live in a me- well, I live in a former Mexican neighborhood, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's again, that's the real problem. It's gentrification that's the real freaking problem. But just We're because there are pro- other problems I, doesn't mean that. <laughs> so you don't have anything to say about? I, 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 you I, know, I, it's also these rich kids. I I don't like rich kids telling other people like how not to be offensive. This is the other, like anybody who how says you, check your do privilege. You, they're rich do you, kids. Don't f- do don't fucking tell that me that these kids aren't rich kids, privileged kids that are issuing at, these demands. At I, OSU and, U, and University of Oregon, you do, you have no idea. They they might no, actually be. It's not be OSU. Mexican. It's just University of Oregon. OSU uh, is the student union. No. No, the student governments of rival schools, Oregon State University and the University of Oregon, have announced a temporary partnership. Well, that's fine. If you owe an OSU, yeah. Examine the data, really. <laughs> Fine-grained analysis. <laughs> this is what got your field into trouble. <laughs> you're going to actually read the article, I said. You're, you're, <laughs> you're being an article. I know that you, I you're know being that a bully. Being... You're being a bully right now. All right. uh, Uh, But I will say that anybody who says check your privilege, anybody who uses that that term, check your privilege, is among the like point oh 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 one percent of like the most privileged people in the world and probably the point one percent privileged people in America. Maybe, but that doesn't mean you should dress up like an Arab princess. <laughs> I'm going to dress up like an Arab as a civil disobedience act of protest. And if and if you Oregon students have a problem with it, you know where to find me. Okay, how about this? I'm a quarter Lebanese, and I'm all Latin American. So what if I tell you that I would personally find it in poor taste if you dress up as either an Arab princess or a stereotypical bandolero? Um, but I know you, you wouldn't. Would, you would, No, I, I'm going to tell you. Just pretend to believe me. You know what you should do is just get revenge. Get like dress up as like a. That's chas- your solution ca- for a Hasidic, it. like a Hasidic. No, it won't, that won't offend you. I'm gonna have to dress up like a privileged but it white bo- a privileged white boy from Boston is what I'm gonna have to dress up as. <laughs> hey, that's not cool. Not even funny as a joke. Uh, <laughs> that crossed the line. That definitely crossed the line. Uh, All right, yeah. we never even said what we're gonna talk about today, so. What we are going to talk about today is responsibility, moral responsibility for dressing up as, no, just for <laughs> moral responsibility and responsibility in general across um, a bunch of different domains, in particular art, sports, and then also morality. We'll be right back. I was so confused and- Everybody talking about everybody. 
Welcome back to Very Bad Wizards. Um, just like to take a moment to thank everybody for all their support, um, all the emails, especially after. I think we were both maybe not quite sure how that hundredth episode was going to go, and yeah. <laughs> it was really good. Good to hear the supporting. I'm still not sure how it went, but it, <laughs> at least the people who emailed us emailed us nice things. I was definitely slurry at the end. <laughs> <laughs> you were a little bit. A little bit, but you know, we—I we, I think somebody's like made a point, kind of like this. But you know, if we if we were gonna go out, it was gonna go out in a very bad wizards quintessential episode. If we're gonna yeah. be <laughs> sloppy, <laughs> we don't know if that person meant it as a compliment or a criticism, but yeah, uh, but yeah. I choose to believe. <laughs> so, uh, so thank you very much. Um, it's it's been an amazing, tremendous ride of a hundred episodes. So now we're just moving on 101 to the next to the next 100 episodes. If you'd like to email us, you can email us at verybadwizards at gmail.com. You can tweet us at, at peas or at Tamler or at verybadwizards. Um, and if you'd like to support us in uh, more tangible ways, you can go to verybadwizards.com and click on support. And there you'll see a couple of ways to support us. Um, you can click on the Amazon link and shop. And we'll get a little piece, uh, even though you won't pay any more. Um, or you go to Very Bad Wizards. Uh, sorry, you can go to www.patreon.com slash verybadwizards and sign up to support us there. We really appreciate it. Um, in fact, we just recorded a little special uh, treat for, rather than a, a newsletter uh, with our picks, we just recorded for, like, what, 20? <laughs> 20, but yeah, longer than we <laughs> <Yeah>. intended. <laughs> longer but, than we intended. <laughs> but it was a newsletter for our that, that every one of our Patreon supporters will get, no matter what you what even level you sign up. Even if it's a penny. Although I don't know mm -hmm. if you can do a penny, but if, it's, if uh, you can do a penny, then you, you would get this if, if You know, the dollar a is a new penny. Do yeah, dollar is a new exactly. penny. <laughs> um, I think you can do less than a dollar, though. But anyway, yeah, no, you the, definitely. The, can. Yeah, so we we did our newsletter this month in audio form. We'll see. It, it was a little long, and that's going to require a little extra work. But if you subscribe on pa Patreon, you'll hear you'll hear our suggestions and not just read our suggestions. That's for right. the month. Um, and if you don't, you'll never know. <laughs> <laughs> we'll <laughs> never mention them again. <laughs> I just erase it from my. I take a forget me now, uh, <laughs> right after we record. <laughs> um, Notice how we haven't been talking about Westworld. <laughs> I don't even know what that is. I don't know. Um, never heard of it. What is that? <laughs> what it is? It's the cultural appropriation of cowboys. I'll give you that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So. 
I like how we're worried about cultural ap- appropriation when soon, like, robots, driverless cars, climate change, all of that's just going to take over the I world. I know. Did you see, by the Trump. way, that Mercedes, Mercedes-Benz just said, like, fuck it, we're going to make our cars. Like, no moral dilemmas. We're yeah. just going to make our cars loyal. Yeah. Protect what a, what their... A, what a German car company thing to do. <laughs> we're going to kill all the pedestrians. Don't listen to him, Tina Sibyl. <laughs> I meant loyal. Yeah. <laughs> they are loyal. <laughs> They're loyal people. I think uh, people like how much longer are are, are we going to be just blanket permission to make fun of Germans? Like how long does that last? I th- I think it probably should have stopped right around 2000. See, I think you get 100 years since the Holocaust. Well, you do. I don't. I don't. <laughs> you know what's about to expire is the poor Armenians um and their uh, like what the Turks did. Yeah. I don't feel yeah, like the, the, t- the U.S. government <laughs> never really recognized that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, they. It, it helps to have the media being in charge of the media. <laughs> Your own tragedies get get some attention. I did not say that. All right, all right. Uh, oh, you can. T- did you say Twitter and? Yeah, I did. Facebook, like us on Facebook. Oh, like us on Facebook and and go to iTunes and make Tamler happy. Oh, real quick, I wanted to give a quick shout-out to the Undergraduate Philosophy Club at University of Minnesota in the Twin Cities. They had me out to give a talk. They invited me um, along with the de- the department, and I had a great time. It was really fun meeting them. Akshay is the student who organized it. Also, Fernando, who um, initially invited me the the previous year and he's been a big fan of the podcast and is active on facebook akshay too i i think is a fan i'm pretty sure actually because he um he picked me up with another student in the in the club amanda and as we were driving to the hotel to, to the hotel he says uh, so how's it going with your daughter and 12 angry men i i'm sorry to hear what happened which was which was <laughs> sort of funny and surreal. So um, I had a great time talking with them. I had a great time giving the talk, and I and I really appreciated it. Uh, they seem like they have a really fun program. Hey, hey, if you're in Minnesota, get involved in the Undergraduate Philosophy Club. Oh, there's my dog again. Okay. By the way, one of the things about cultural appropriation, like the reason I had that idea to do that. Someone named um, Isaiah Wallace, and he it's like Isaiah, like as if it wasn't hard enough to spell Isaiah Berlin. He also just threw in another S in addition to just the <laughs> jumble of A's and I's. So, <laughs> so he he like alerted us, and I'm not gonna say what's what the context was, but it was something along the lines of someone was giving him shit for using woke for saying woke and the person was saying that it's disrespectful for white people to say woke i just think it sounds corny but i don't care who says (laughs) you are going to be the last person i would hope to complain about other people using black culture (laughs) i i it's more like twitter culture like i don't know it's some uh your whole beat is like all that's cultural appropriation Actually, no. Uh, think about uh, it. There is there is a, a like a very thin line, um, and I'm like I uh, th- you know you don't hear you me are rapping. Well, on the other side, no, you but you know I will, 
<laughs> well, that's a whole other discussion. Um, but yes, Music. I think that any white person who tries to get into hip hop culture has uh, a completely different responsibility to black culture than like I think that it is actually uh, like something to take very seriously. So we can talk about that at some point. Ooh, that sounds um, like a good topic. Yeah. <laughs> Um, that's why I don't like Hamilton, by the way. It's your, your people love it. You don't like um, Hamilton because you don't like, mu- no, first of all, it's not just <laughs> my people. It's all people. I meant people who like musicals. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Let's talk. We're going to run out of time to talk about free will, art, and morality. This was your pick. So yeah, why don't you set so it I'll up? I'll introduce it. So this was written in 2008, um, in the Journal of Ethics by Paul Russell, who's a very well-known philosopher, a Humean at University of British Columbia. He's also a friend of mine. You know how you always say that somebody's a friend? Oh, well, you have a, a friend? Yeah. yeah is, he a a, is he a sexy Humean? He's not a slutty. <laughs> uh, <laughs> David Hume. But I, I don't find him sexy. I'll say <laughs> you just don't yeah. put him in that category. Um, just like a I, he's a handsome man. Don't get me wrong. Um, he's also in charge of the resp- uh, responsibility project. He's heading up this big grant that in Gothenburg, Sweden, and in fact, that's why I got to go to Gothenburg, Sweden, is thanks to Paul Russell. And I've always liked this paper. I just assigned it in a in a grad seminar that I'm teaching, and it's a paper first and foremost about the connection between responsibility and evaluation, blame, praise, and desert, all of those things, and luck. So, how does luck figure in? to our evaluation, our blame and praise, who we think deserves what, in a bunch of different realms. And here luck is defined by, it it, it means just things outside of our control. That's what luck means. So what, what role does luck play when we're trying to figure out who to blame and praise and who deserves what reward or what punishment now as you know and as our listeners know because we've done a bunch of episodes on this there's this question about whether we can be responsible whether we can be fairly evaluated right whether it's just to blame or praise us for actions if those actions are produced by factors that are beyond our control right this is the free will moral responsibility debate we had it with sam harris we had it with Eddie Namias. Our first two episodes are partly on this. And the, the question of determinism in this debate, which is mostly kind of a red herring, because I don't think determinism is the issue, but I think it's at least helpful as a way of entering the problem, you know, just sort of viewing the problems. And the and The question when it comes to moral responsibility is, look, if our morally wrong actions, so let's say you perform a morally wrong action, like you not voting, for example, (laughs) right? (laughs) So if that action is determined by causal factors that trace back long before you were born, all the way to the Big Bang maybe if determinism is true, right? So it's all determined. It's determined up till this point where you – David Pizarro don't vote, then is it fair to blame you for that? Is that is it fair to hold you responsible for that? Um, listeners seem to think it is fair to blame you. In fact, you've gotten a good amount of shit from that. It was, it's been <laughs> nice to be on the other side of that for once. <laughs> I decided to deflect your, <laughs> you know, 
It's like <laughs> you're going to dress up like a stereotypical Mexican. I'll, I'll just take one for the team and yeah. deflect. <laughs> I was a stereotypical uh, like alcoholic in that episode. <laughs> so, right. so what Russell does in this paper is look at evaluation, not just in the moral sphere, but in these other realms, specifically sports and art. He's trying to figure out if there's any sort of distinction between how we assign praise in, say, art or in sports and doing that when it comes to moral actions, morally bad actions, morally wrong actions, morally good actions, how we evaluate people as moral agents. And, right. and I think yeah. just to just to quickly jump in about like, you know, as he's setting the stage, I think um, he makes a point that 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 I don't remember if I've raised raised something similar before but it's one that really resonates with me um that the question of whether or not we're free is almost always talked about by philosophers in the context of moral responsibility yeah and it's understandable but um but there is there is no good reason that if we're not free it shouldn't also threaten a whole bunch of other evaluations that we make not just moral ones like what so if we have absolutely no problem accepting that people can be not free in the domain of artistic achievement or sports in really important ways uh, it seems as if you know then what's holding us up so much in the domain of moral responsibility so he's using this these as a tool to understand I yes. take it, and correct me if I'm wrong a, no, a tool to understand compatibilism by looking at our perfect the perfect ease with which we're compatibilists apparently in other domains yeah so his target is two views both of which were expressed by a libertarian incompatibilist somebody who thinks that responsibility isn't compatible with determinism what robert kane bob kane he's a retired philosopher at the university of texas from boston great boston accent so he's argued that there's no if if determinism is true there's no originality in art you know there's no original genius there's no novel work it's all just like you know neurons firing and right it might be new but it's not new in the product of an agent like creating it in any important way it's not truly novel and he says there's no basis for true dessert when it comes to evaluating them Right. And so what Russell does, he takes the example of Mozart and he says, if we're evaluating whether Mozart is or if his music was original. Right. You can only evaluate that by comparing it to other compositions, other composers in that period and to see if he took any new steps, groundbreaking steps, if he took music in a new direction that's what we mean. That's all we're talking about when we say that Mozart was an original composer. Is right. this, this, this hasn't been done before. We don't need them to be that pure in order to value them and see them as original. No. In fact, that's not what we're talking about. Like, it's not even that that's not the point when we're asking yeah. whether somebody is like Mozart. If You know, and you could ask that. It's not like... So there's a legitimate question to ask of whether Mozart was producing original work or was he just perfecting 
uh, a craft that had already been laid down. So you can ask that question. But when you're asking that question, what you're not asking is, was he self-caused in such a way that's incompatible with determinism? You're not thinking about determinism. What you're thinking about is his music and him as a composer in contrast to what had come before him. But, so whatever the truth is about determinism and free will, that has nothing to do with actually asking whether Mozart is an original or a creative genius. Right. right? And, and I think that it's a nice example. It's a nice example because it's a weird question. It's, exactly. like it's, it's weird to think that that would be the criteria to hold Mozart up as a, as a creative genius. And I think the other reason he chose Mozart, and it's a good example, is Mozart very clearly, this was, a, this was someone who, when he was three, was already composing like piano concertos. I mean, right. he was just gifted. He had like, by the grace of whatever, just this unbelievable natural talent that not only that, you know, this is some, some sort of gene, and he also had all the opportunities. His father was a much lesser composer. He, he's not someone even that put a huge amount of effort into his work. If you've ever seen the movie Amadeus, you know, and you see <laughs> Salieri, just he, he's furious about this because here's Mozart with blessed with this incredible gift, and he's like a drunkard. But and somehow, moreover, like these things just come out of him. Yeah, and moreover, even if he did put in a ton of work, right. it still wouldn't be what we, you know, like yeah. that, you know, being an artist and being <laughs> being hardworking. It's not like any guarantee, like working hard and a dollar will get you a coffee. Like you have like it's not just that Mozart may not have had complete control over his artistic genius. It's that he so obviously didn't. Right. But as you said, it it really wouldn't matter because that's not what we're asking ourselves. It's not what we're asking ourselves when we ask the question of whether he was creative or whether he was original. It's also not what we're asking ourselves when we evaluate him as a composer the various prizes that you that were awarded to him we um we feel very comfortable assigning those prizes without really knowing much of anything about the history behind the compositions as long as he actually did them it really doesn't matter to what extent he put in a lot of hard work and it certainly doesn't matter to what extent you know his actions when he sat down to write his pieces, were determined by factors that trace back, you know, beyond to the Big Bang. Right. Yeah. Right. One way to say it is, it doesn't. It, it doesn't even on the face of it undermine um, when you say when you say, oh, Mozart was such a great composer, and somebody says, but you know, right, that he was just born that way. Yeah. Like it does not. Like it doesn't even raise the question that therefore he shouldn't be called a great composer. Another example, I use this in my class, but I'll use it here. So this is on the question of dessert. So one of the great travesties in the long history of travesties in the Academy Award is Martin Scorsese losing out on Best Director for Goodfellas and Goodfellas losing out on Best Picture. Who did he lose to? To (laughs) Kevin Costner for Dances with Wolves. Oh, my God. Yeah. You know, they, they should have time machine debates, not about killing baby Hitler, but about changing the Academy's vote that year. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I think everybody, f- again, feels comfortable now. I would think almost everybody. Cause I don't think anybody even remembers Dances with Wolves. Certainly people don't go back and watch it, um, whereas Goodfellas was like a groundbreaking movie that ushered in the modern era of filmmaking. When you say Martin Scorsese deserved 
the Oscar for Best Actor, and that it was an, an injustice. It was unfair to give it to Kevin Costner. Again, I don't know anything about their past and what opportunities they were given, and and that's irrelevant to that evaluative claim, right? It's just not. It has nothing to do with that. It's you're you're talking about the achievement, and you're comparing the the person's connection to the achievement, and if. If you still struggle with this in art, then Russell says, okay, let's go back to sports and we'll talk about, like, you know, did Shaq deserve the MVP that year? Or And again, what we're not talking about is whether Shaq self-caused himself to become a great basketball player. We're asking, did he have the, the best year? And so it seems like we're very comfortable, as you said, making all sorts of evaluations in these other spheres, including evaluations involving praise, blame, and desert. Like, this person deserved this, this person didn't deserve that, it was unfair for people to blame him for this, it was, it was fair to blame her for that, it was fair to praise her for that. The issue of determinism would seem completely out of place, like you were missing the point. Right, right. Um, he uses not Shaq, but Pelé, yeah. the Brazilian soccer player, which... Almost made me stop reading. I was wondering about it? that. Yeah. <laughs> Do you hate Pele? I, know, I, d- I don't is hate it Pele. Pele. I always uh, heard it as Pele. 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 Yeah. Um, no, I, I don't hate him. But um, being born in Argentina, you're supposed to. I, I, you, can't, you just can't call him the greatest. You know. Um, but he was a <laughs> transcendent talent at the time. You know, I didn't transcendent. Know. A young Tamler didn't know anything about soccer, but knew right, Pele. You know? Right, right. And I think this is just true. And I mean, I hopefully everybody catches this intuition, right? So the question is, what's the difference? Can we just go, before we get to the moral yeah. question, yeah, yeah. just his standards. So he says, when it comes at least to these other areas, here are the way we evaluate whether the judgment, the evaluative judgment, is fair or not, we ask these questions, three questions. Is the standard, what the standard of evaluation that we're using, the right or correct standard? Like, how are we evaluating people? You know, if we're evaluating MVP in a baseball season, should we go by home runs and RBIs, or should we go, like, should we take into account these other factors? How much should we take into account defense? How much should we take into account, you know, the fact that a pitcher only pitches once every five days? So we're, and, you know, with Oscars, how much do we take into account the popular appeal of the movie? With music, how much do we take into account the, the, the originality of the composition? Right. Um, and you, I mean, and you could, it's, it's not as if we don't make any fine-grained distinctions here. Like, if you find out, for instance, that, um, that, uh, well, when you actually look at the statistics, all of the success of the Lakers uh, during the Shaq era was actually due to these other players on the court, right? Like Shaq, you know, this, which is not right. true. But you could imagine, I mean, there are some features that you do care about um, in which if you remove the agent entirely, like if Scorsese actually just completely bit a Chinese film, oh, he did, um, yeah. <laughs> um, then honestly, like, it, it, could under, it, it could undermine whether or not you praise them. In so fact, there are it undermined features. my appreciation of The Departed. Because yeah, that was based too, on yeah. Infernal Affairs, and I, you know, for a long time I couldn't appreciate The Departed, and part of that was because it was 
you know, like I saw like the, so much of it was lifted from yeah. the, from Inferno. I mean, I value I value him as a director less for The Departed, yeah, than for Goodfellas. Clearly, right? Um, and and I, so he's like my favorite, uh, one of my favorite directors. So it's not uh, not slagging right. slagging on <laughs> If Martin, if you're listening, Tamler still loves you. <laughs> but it's a <laughs> big sigh of relief from. from <laughs> From Marty. From Marty. He's about to unsubscribe. <laughs> He's uh, going to stop giving us $3 a month on Patreon. <laughs> I, w- I mean, the opening scene of The Departed, like, is just shot for shot the opening scene of Infernal Affairs. It's not, yeah. I couldn't get past that for a while. But anyway, right. uh, it was cultural appropriation. <laughs> well, no, he put white people in it, so it's even worse. So that's one standard. And I think those evolve and change, and they're the subject of lively debate. Like, is this the right or correct standard? You know, in in any domain, certainly art, certainly um, sports, you're always wondering what the best standard of evaluation is, the best standard, and there's room for a lot of reasonable disagreement over how best to do that. Second question you ask is, whatever the standard is, has it been properly applied to the agent or the performance? So sometimes you have large agreement, large, you know, rough agreement on the standards, but then there's debate over whether it was applied properly when it comes to the agent or the performance. So, so that's that's another question that that you have to ask, and that's another way that you could come to the conclusion that that it, this was an unfair or unjust evaluation. But again, not, it doesn't have anything to do with whether it was determined or not that they act the way they are. It's just a question about hey, you have these standards, you're supposed to apply them consistently across the board. Right, <clears throat> right. So these are the standards. That's the way we decide whether a judgment is fair or not. Now, remember, in, in moral responsibility judgments, the question is, is it fair to blame or praise somebody if determinism is true? So you're still asking that question. Is it fair to blame or praise them? And, the, and, and, and Russell's big question in this paper is, we have these three standards, these three questions that we ask ourselves when it comes to art, when it comes to sports. We could do that, and it seems like we often do do that in morality. They have nothing to do with the question of determinism and the question of whether anybody has libertarian free will. Why can't th- we just ask those same questions about and assigning moral responsibility? Right. What is stopping us from from being the fairly comfortable compatibilists that we are in the aesthetic and, and athletic domains? I guess the, the, the exceptions are only when moral issues start to play a role, which is like um, you like the Olympic Committee's weird rules about cheating by sleeping in a hyperbaric chamber versus having been raised in a country that's of high altitude. Like their, their like moral concerns actually start getting mixed in and that, but it leads to funny results where it's like, okay, the, the complete luck of having been born in a country with higher altitudes means that you get to train as a runner with lower oxygen conditions and that's okay, but you can't actually sleep in a hyperbaric chamber. Okay. So that's a good point. So, Here's the question about that. Is that just a debate over the standards that we ought to use and sort of what counts as cheating and what counts as as not cheating? Or is that kind of a sign that the, the standards are tied to our conception of 
you know, of free will in some way. But again, nobody thinks that like no, yeah, Usain it's Bolt that, is because of like his body structure that he or like he, it's different when you're making the judgment as to whether or not somebody is a good athlete versus Deserved whether or not they cheated in a competition. Yeah, I, you know. Um, but we can keep talking. But one of the things that comes that that like I in immediately thought of, well, that we kind of are this. We are compatibilists about character, right? I mean, it seems as if this is one of the when we're judging an athlete, we're valuing their abilities, whether they be natural or earned by hard work. We value them in a way that I think that we value people's character. And this leads me to my big point, which I can get to right now, which is that I think one big difference that I didn't I don't I don't think Russell discussed was that the value judgments that we're making for athletes are ones of positivity and the value judgments that right. we're we're making about moral uh actions are usually about whether or not somebody deserves to be punished or blamed. Yeah. I think that you would get similar intuitions for athletes or artists who committed infractions whether they were bad or not. So suppose that, that Liza goes right to um, softball, her PE this year is softball, and she just really sucks. Yeah. Because um, she can't throw the ball very far. Yeah. I think we have the intuition that that's, it would be unfair to grade her with an F because she couldn't throw the ball very far. Um, yeah. Right. Right. So I but on the other hand, if the kid who throws the ball the farthest, we don't say like, well, he can't help it. He was born that way or she whatever. Right. Like, I he think we're just using right. very different. Uh, I think that we're so focused on the positive when we're evaluating aesthetic and athletic achievement that, and on the negative when we're evaluating morality that I think that if you just control for that, you get a lot of these differences. to go. So, with. OK, it could be that the strength of this argument, and I do think it's pretty strong, depends on the asymmetry of p praise and blame, because I do think we're way more comfortable setting aside any issue of luck and determinism when it comes to praise than when we are for than we are for blame. So I agree with you about that. Like with Eliza. You're right that we wouldn't want to assign her an F for not being able to throw the ball, but because we just don't think the correct standard for how well you do in gym is is that. You know, you do give feel comfortable giving Fs to students who d who really do poorly on tests, even if... But here's the other thing I would say. Blame is a big part of sports, right? And we throw around blame in sports pretty easily we say somebody's not a clutch player that that takes away from their um praise as a player but it can also mean that they, that you really don't like that player you think that that was that player in spite of his or her stats was actually not a somebody that contributed to the success of the team and I don't know, there's this guy at UNC, he's a grad student now, Sam Rice Dennis. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that what right. But he had this example of like field goal kickers who miss uh, field goals, right? Like take Scott yeah. Norwood um, or take Blair Walsh from last year missing a big kick in Minnesota. That's the example that he used. He's young. I don't know, he probably doesn't even know who Scott Norwood is. So 
it's not like Buffalo fans don't blame Scott Norwood for missing that kick. They well, really that's what do. I'm saying. But, they do, yeah. uh, but but I I I I think that that is actually an argument in favor of this. I I think that um that when people fail, they have no problem blaming. But I think that the attribution is usually one of the proper effort wasn't made. So. If I don't think failed, they think that about Scott Norwood. Like everyone I don't knows know he was trying. Norwood, I don't know who Scott he's Norwood is. He's the Buffalo is, so. Bills kicker <laughs> that missed wide right. Really? Like, how do you not know who Scott Norwood is? The that's worse you than have not voting. Such a curse of knowledge. That's worse than not voting. <laughs> you have such a curse of knowledge. Like I don't know the name you of live any like of any kicker close to Buffalo. Yeah, you no, but there was a whole movie made about him. <laughs> have you ever seen <laughs> Buffalo '66? Listen, it's outside of my control, so why are you blaming me for not knowing this? No, I, I wasn't going to until I read the paper. Now I realize <laughs> that it's okay. Take take Allen Iverson. Right? Like when when we when he performed well, I don't think anybody cared whether it was natural talent or hard work. When he performed poorly and he was talking when he didn't want to talk about practice. Like when they were like, You didn't practice like practice and he's like going off on practice. I think the attribution there is he didn't put in enough effort. He right. could have done otherwise. And so I think that at, at the very least, there is an asymmetry that is evident in sports, whether or not ultimately we I think we. Yeah, so it is different. But you're right. There's more blame and it's maybe a more resentful kind of blame. If you think that there was some way, some conscious way, like that they didn't work hard enough, they didn't practice hard enough. They didn't. But again, I don't think it's required. This is where I think it gets complicated. I think it's just. It, it it adds to the blame rather than, you know, makes it possible in the first place. Because there's plenty I, of examples where you know that the person was trying as hard as they can. There's all, like, I don't know, it's like probably 18 quarterbacks in the NFL right now. They, yeah, I'm sure they're working hard. Um, I'm sure they're doing the best they can. I'm sure Ryan Fitzpatrick is, is working as hard as he can, but he sucks. And people like think that and people are very comfortable saying he doesn't deserve to start the game. He doesn't deserve the money they just paid him. Yeah, but deserve there is. I mean, I think that we that there is when we're talking about athletes, I think that it's easier to talk about are they a value? Are they a value or not? And when they're not like it's it's I guess I might be conflating blame for an error of performance versus blame for not being good because i actually don't think that it it is very often that we say you know what isabella hasn't written one concerto like what the hell like uh, like of course i wouldn't say that because what like why would that even come up but, but if some if somebody were to say that i would say Dude, why are you you can't possibly blame her for something completely outside of her control, like her inability to to produce beautiful music at the level of a genius, right? I mean, I did my dissertation on this asymmetry, where uh, not so much about about freedom of the will, but about like uh, you know being being driven by strong emotions, right? Where we reduce it on the negative side, but we don't for the positive side. Where, like, being overwhelmed with sympathy doesn't reduce any praise. Yeah, I mean, no, I think that's right. Let's take a quick break. What I want to ask, though, more specifically now, is whether the those three questions that he said we ask about 
um, art and sports, whether that will work when it comes to morality and two ways that the incompatibilist, the person who thinks that if determinism is true, we can't fairly blame or praise anybody, the two different ways that they could respond to this challenge. So we'll be right back. Welcome back to Very Bad Wizards. We are talking about Paul Russell's paper, Free Will, Art, and Morality. Now, um, I guess if we agree that we make all these judgments for praise and uh, especially, but maybe also for blame, and all these evaluative judgments about who deserves what in the realm of sports and art, why can't we do that when we're asking whether somebody deserves blame or praise for moral actions, right? That's, that's the key question. And now, it seems like if you're somebody who thinks that determinism, like I used to think in my dissertation and the first couple of papers, and Sam Harris thinks, and Dirk Paraboom and Galen Strawson, if you think that you can't deserve blame or praise if determinism is true, or even if it's not, if just all the factors of our causal factors of our actions trace back beyond our control. Well, since those standards don't appeal to anything about ultimate control or, tr or genuine sourcehood, when we're asking whether somebody's responsible, whether we should blame them, whether we should praise them, we consider the standards for that question, and we're constantly debating about those standards. We're asking if we've applied those standards properly, and we're asking if we're in a good position to judge right now, and if the answer to all those questions is yes, then we think it's, it's perfectly fair to issue that blame judgment. Right? So why, or praise judgment, or desert judgment. So why, like, why wouldn't this work? The incompatibilist can say either, look, there's something different about our moral judgments than our judgments, evaluative judgments in these other domains, art and sports. Or they can say, we're fucked even in those other domains. Right? It's 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 tough to make either of those replies, the and especially maybe the latter, because it just seems like anybody who starts bringing up determinism when you're asking who deserved to be MVP would be laughed out of the debate. Like, that has nothing to do with the question of who deserves MVP, who deserves the Oscar, who deserves to be named the preeminent impressionist painter or whatever, like... 
that we're, we're not asking anything that determinism could possibly have any bearing on. But so then the second horn of the dilemma would be to just say, no, but it's different with morality because while those areas have relative standards of fairness, morality has absolute fairness. Morality requires, by its own lights, morality requires, and this is a quote from the paper, fairness all the way down. Like, did that remind you of anything? <laughs> Tumors <laughs> all the way down, right? Exactly. Uh, now, I don't know what, like, really what absolute fairness means or why it would be tied to some sort of sourcehood or control, but I guess that's the idea. And then, the, and then Paul Russell is saying, but why think that? Like, what's, what's the basis for making that sharp distinction? I think that, that um, w- without sort of being motivated to defend an incompatibilist claim, I think that there is a substantive difference between the kind of evaluation we're making for aesthetic and athletic um, uh, value than one that, for, that we're making for moral blame. And I don't think that I don't, and and I think it doesn't have to be too deep of a distinction for them to be treated very differently. So I I think when it that when it comes to blame, as I've said before, like we really do care about agency. What were the local conditions that gave rise to you doing this? And I don't believe that there is the ultimate freedom all the way down, but I do believe that if you didn't try to do something um, in many cases when we're making a moral judgment if it was if it was something that happened completely automatically um, and there was nothing that you could have no no sort of local control that you could have exerted that you really don't deserve to be morally blamed but I don't think that this these are the right applications or even that they match the the sort of descriptively the judgments that we make in in the athletic or in the aesthetic domains. I think we use the term, does he deserve to be praised? Like, does Mozart deserve to be praised? But I think that we're just using the word deserve in a completely different way. I I think what we're saying is, does his work alone justify our placing him in some pantheon of of scholars, of uh, musicians? I think that's true, but I don't think that harms the main thrust of Russell's argument. Maybe the standards when it comes to the domain of morality are more focused on local conditions of agency than in sports. Although it's not like those things don't matter at all in sports. Right. right? right. Like, I mean, you know, like w- when you're trying to figure out who to blame after your team lost, if somebody did something that was completely a fluke and they had it was a, a total accident and there's nothing they could have done about it they just were just ball happened to hit off their their head or yeah, something and went right, out of bounds yeah. like we don't blame them for that and you know with art it's a little more complicated and especially when we're talking about people who lived 500 years ago but like it matters to us whether the person intended to achieve the artistic effect that they may have achieved so and that it's not just some sort of weird coincidence. Yeah, but like the six-year-old who has the abilities of a virtuoso on the violin, um, it, it really like we would never hold a, the, a kid responsible at that age. But we would definitely value them. For I, I mean, we I think we praise them, and we, we would think them. they they deserve whatever awards they get, right? 
Well, I mean, in, but, only in the sense that I think we use the word deserve to mean something different in that sense. Like, I, I think that what when somebody says, like, uh, I was just at the right place at the right time, and that's why I saved those pedestrians from getting hit by the car. Like, I acted completely, it was completely instinctual. We're actually making a very similar judgment there. We're like, that's great, man, that, you're the, that you are a person who has those instincts. But when it comes to the negative actions, we just, we're actually, like, using a different sense of agency to to judge blame you know what this reminds me of is force majeure and that you know him running away from the avalanche i guess we had this disagreement i thought you were more on my side in this with yoel i i had this disagreement with yoel where i said that the wife was totally within her rights it was totally fair to blame the guy for running away yoel disagreed i still think though that Whichever side of the debate that you come down on in that, that's just a debate over the correct standards for evaluation. It's not a debate that would be implicated by the question of determinism. Because, again, like he could have deliberated saying, I have decided I am going to to abandon my family and save my own skin right now and like really thought about it and really like and still the incompatibilist would say if determinism is true then that person doesn't uh deserve blame it's not fair to blame the person right so like but what's doing the work there isn't that what's doing the work for there is the incompatibilist the incompatibilist there is probably really saying like the the standards that I'm using to evaluate morality are ones that require control at a really, really deep level. So if this guy didn't have control at a really, really deep level, even if he deliberated, he does not deserve blame. So I'm with, like, fine, if you're an incompatibilist, you believe that. I just think that the incompatibilist who then says that Mozart is a, was a wonderful artist isn't being inconsistent. I think that, that it really is the case that when we say Mozart deserves to be praised for his work, we're saying something really different than he you know like Gauguin's paintings are different from Gauguin's like actions right yes so Gauguin let's take Gauguin right like there's the question of whether his paintings are better than say Van Gogh's paintings right and then there's the question of does he deserve blame for abandoning his family family. to to become a great painter and go to Tahiti and die of syphilis and all that so right and I think that this is why that's an interesting example because we say he is a great painter, right? Whether he was better, like what, wh- wherever you rank him, he was a great painter. He was a bad man. Well, yeah. The, uh, so we should do a p- the Bernard Williams paper on this because he kind of thinks that w- when we're, well, at least when you evaluate whether he made the right choice, that you can't separate the moral versus the artistic sides of him that cleanly but but set that aside because i don't think that's relevant exactly to to this my point is as we decide whether or not to blame him morally why why can't we use the same framework for eval in fact it seems like we do in fact use the same framework for evaluating that question his moral actions as we do the artistic 
the framework that we use to evaluate him as an artist. It's just, of course, there are different standards, but there are different standards in sports and, 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 what, and different standards as an art and different standards from one art form to another art form, right? But wait, like, what's the, what do you mean then by framework versus standards? Because so the I framework is like you're, you come up with these standards, you ask if they're the correct standards, and you ask if they've been applied applied properly, and you ask whether like you are in a uh, and and the and the person was in the the right circumstances or or fair circumstances to be judged. And as long as none of those standards involve anything that has to do with determinism, then the compatibilist wins. The person who thinks that determinism is irrelevant t- or libertarian but, free will is irrelevant to those judgments. But a, but but what I, I I guess what I'm saying is the standards in cl- in the in the moral case include with them usually some belief in control that the standards in the aesthetic domain don't include. Right. So, so yes, I mean, but but. So I don't know that it's doing any work. To, the point is taken for praise. I think we use the same standards for for. But he's not saying the, we use the same standards. He's just saying that the standards that that we use don't, in all of these cases, don't involve anything about them being self-caused or having I, libertarian free will. Well, I, but I think that that's the question that he's starting with, which is the intuition that determinism matters for moral responsibility is because we tend to think of, whether right or wrong, people who are incompatibilists think that the appropriate standard really is whether or not you had ultimate control. Well, I I get that they do, but if nobody agrees with them, but if the practices as as they go don't assume that and nobody in when they engage in these practices are assuming somebody has libertarian free will when when they blame them, then then, yeah, I mean, you can have that as a standard. And you can say that's not fair, but... No, but that's the whole point of a libertarian incompatibilist, is that they actually believe that the standards are the, the correct ones, right? They're not, it's not willy-nilly. They're, they're, I, what I'm saying is that the argument... But it has to correspond incom- in some ways to people's intuitions Right, and, and I think that plenty beliefs. of people... Ha- yeah. But I think that plenty of people have the intuition that determinism undermines moral blame, but it doesn't undermine athletic achievement. Or aesthetic achievement. I, I mean, I don't. I it's sort. It's it sounds like maybe in the, the abstract, question. but not like I think that this is like this is P. F. Strawson's point. This is Russell's point that when you're when you're on the ground, when you're actually looking at how people interact in their relationships and their blaming judgments, no, we don't care. Like you don't care when you're blaming me for something I did with the podcast. You don't care whether I had acted with libertarian free will or not. You do care whether I intended to do something or it was an accident. I mean, you don't care about whether I have libertarian free will. You just don't. And and I mean, but that's not an argument against libertarian does. free will. I don't think that anybody who believes that incompatibilism is true who is a libertarian cares that much whether or not people themselves in their everyday practice are appropriately like using the like they just believe it to be true right like this is an argument about the appropriate normative approach to yeah i don't agree like i mean i know that there there's the occasional incompatibilist that would say it doesn't matter what anybody thinks this is just true but But there's no basis for saying that but there's plenty of evidence that if you undermine (laughs) 
Like, you know, here's what's true is that you have to, like, tap your toes five times in order to, like, be blameworthy for what you did. That undermines every argument you're making just as much. No. Like, just because you're saying it doesn't mean it's true. Like, that's not an argument. <laughs> like, there's plenty of evidence that people have amassed that, that deter- threats of determinism undermine the practice of blame. But if there is that evidence, then it is the evidence comes from the way from people's practices and their beliefs. It doesn't come from Kantian noumenal realm. It doesn't come from rational argument. It comes from the it just comes from how like what people actually feel and believe and what their attitudes are and what their practices are. Yeah, but but that's not. I mean, this is not what's motivating Russell's argument. Russell is not making a descriptive claim about, uh, like, he's actually saying uh, the conditions that are met, the conditions that we feel are reasonably met in the athletic and aesthetic domains do not include freedom all the way down. So why ought they be included in in our moral judgments? And I take it that what that's trying to say is, like, there is no real inconsistency in a normative framework that says that compatibilism is true. Um, I, 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 I want to disagree with that because I think like the sexy human that <laughs> Russell is, he doesn't separate, he doesn't make a clean distinction between the normative and the, and the descriptive. So he's more worried about the skeptic than the uh, libertarian because, as he notes, the libertarian is in the... Uh, impossible position of having to articulate the kind of freedom that you would need in order to deserve blame, and they're never able to do that. The skeptic doesn't have to do that, right? The skeptic can just say, our practices are fucked, this whole thing. But then his response to the skeptic, let me see if I can find the quote, is like, well, that just throws all of our practices completely out of whack. And that's that's the argument against it, right? But that's only because he believes that that it is uh, the right comparison to say that if determinism undermines our moral evaluations, then they must also undermine our aesthetic evaluations, and clearly they don't. And all I'm saying is that I don't think that no, that's No, I don't second- think he's saying that, though, because he says you could try to— this is in the second horn of the dilemma where the incompatibilist— em- embraces the distinction, says, look, when it comes to these other areas— you're right. You don't need free will all the way down, but you do for moral evaluations. And then what he's saying is, well, no, because it's it that would that would commit us. So this is on page 19. We'll post. We can still post stuff, right? On the on <laughs> yes. the like in this new site. Um, <laughs> we'll post this paper. The compatibilist rejoinder to this. Uh, So here, okay, so this is on page 19. While standards of relative fairness may suffice in arts and athletics, this is what you're saying, where free will concerns are plainly out of place, this is not how things stand with morality. The compatibilist rejoinder to this is that this approach commits us to either a falsification of moral life or collapses into radical skepticism and nihilism. Right, and the, according to compatibilism, the way to avoid this unattractive dilemma is to look more closely at the significance of the art-morality analogy. And I just don't think that the analogy is doing the work that he thinks it's doing, because I think that it's a real difference in the standards that we're using when we're evaluating the value of a positive aesthetic or athletic achievement. People, at the very least, we can agree that, that local agency judgments 
are not used in the same way in the th- a- athletic and aesthetic domains as they are in the moral domain. Like whether or not you believe that it goes all the way down or not, right? Well, I, I mean, I think it depends. It depends on the, the domain. Like, I, I think they're not used in the same way in art and in sports. They're not used in the same way in different art forms. It's all continuous, I think. And it all, like, I think they all matter to some degree. And, like, as, as Russell points out, there is, like, an, a certain kind of irony to the fact that we're issuing evaluative judgments at all if there's no libertarian free will, right? But like, th- there is that, I, that affects every domain, though. It doesn't just affect morality. It affects all of them. It affects all of them in different ways. It's more or less ironic in some, in some domains than others. It matters more in some domains than others. But ultimately, this is a continuum. Yeah, but, but I, I don't think that it's so obvious that libertarian free will ought to matter in evaluative judgments across all domains. Like sometimes you just have a, a, a judgment that something is valuable or it's not valuable, right? Or it can get something, somebody can get something done or they can't get something done. I guess dessert that, judgments. Right, and, so, and that's why I just don't think that what we're truly making in the aesthetic domain is dessert judgments. I think we're making value judgments. They're evaluative, but they're more like, is this football player a good at throwing a football? And that doesn't require a, a, a dessert judgment. It was only requires, like, is this, is this piece of gold valuable, right? Is this robot good at making widgets? Like, that's the judgments that I think we're making. So let me push back briefly. We should wrap up. I'm glad we finally disagree about something. When somebody says that, oh, that person didn't deserve the Nobel Peace Prize, that's the same thing. We're saying their achievements aren't worthy of being honored. And this is a moral honor, right? It's a moral Uh, honor that's being given. It's not an aesthetic honor. It's not a sports honor. Well, let's not use the Peace Prize. Let's say, like, it's just the Nobel Prize for valuing an achievement. I well, think but, no. but my point is in morale, the, the one that's the only one you could really say is moral is the Peace Prize. That's why I'm, I'm saying. But but I'm saying we would we we approach that the same way we approach the Nobel, you know, saying Bob Dylan didn't deserve the Nobel Prize for literature. Like those two things are of a piece. But 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 I guess what I'm saying is that no, we don't. Like in fact, being raised in a really really shitty, painful environment like can lead you to produce great art. And we might say like you, this: you are a wonderful artist, and you deserve to be you deserve a prize for your art because I find your art to be valuable. I think that's super different than if you are raised in a really really shitty environment and you then commit a crime. I think that naturally gives rise to the thought: does that person deserve to be imprisoned and punished for that crime? in a way that just doesn't come up in the aesthetic domain, but not because like we're thick-headedly failing to realize that it's the same judgment, but because actually the standards are different. What we say, what we mean by dessert in one domain is it's the same word, but it's not the same meaning at all. I agree, but I would connect that to there's a standard that we have for blame judgments and specifically like fairness with regarding to punishment that a person didn't come from an environment where it seems to us like anybody in that environment is going to uh has a good chance of having their heart frozen or they just didn't have opportunities right so i i agree with that i will say though that that's specific to to like really harsh dessert judgments like really harsh dessert like punishment judgments where a person we don't 
care about that at all, say, in just normal blaming of, and, and even moral blaming uh, in interpersonal relationships, or we barely care about it. And if somebody brings it up, well, I came from a, you know, I came from a bad environment. That's why I screwed you on that committee and didn't give you tenure or something like that. Like, nobody's going to be like, oh, okay, no problem then. I don't blame you. Uh, but, but I actually think that it is – so I have a friend who whose who's partner treats him horribly, and it's probably because she suffers from mental illness. Like, it's very common for me to think, like – you know what? She doesn't deserve moral blame for what she's doing, right? Right, but that's like, but that's so that's because the standard for blame is that you the person doesn't suffer from severe. This is Strawson's point, like P.F. Strawson, like the, the, that's the standard we use. It has nothing to do with determinism. But I, I don't. But <laughs> the standard could be described as I think determinism matters. Except like, that you don't because you – if you said to that per, – to your friend, no, you shouldn't blame that person because determinism is true or may very well be true, he would say, what the hell are you talking about? But it actually has a chance of making him uh, see your point if you say you shouldn't blame her. She doesn't deserve blame because she has mental illness. But look, that's what pulls the determinist intuition to begin with, the fact that that standard clearly does matter. Like you can argue that determinism ought not matter at all. But like that's why I don't think it clearly does. I disagree. Like well, that's I mean, what we're arguing could, about. But, but let's not say like determinism presumably matters because we care about control. So that's why I've been trying to limit my examples to just local control. And I think that it is a substantive disagreement with Russell to say that the standards of local control apply in a very important way for moral judgments in a way that they don't imply. But no, but that's then that, but, but then the example, the analogy loses ground like th then there's no point in saying like why can't we apply the same judgments that we're making in the aesthetic domain to the moral domain because like it's it's neither here nor there it's like saying like hey we value gold and gold didn't try to be gold so why don't we do the same thing for no, human beings I, so like okay. when they're making there I, I agree that there's a difference between valuing a performance or valuing a body of work as an artist and valuing the artist themselves, right? That's but why you love Woody Allen. we do also value the artist themselves. And we do think they deserve awards and they deserve to be seen in certain ways and not seen in other ways. One yeah. thing that you have studiously and very sort of sinisterly avoided addressing is the Nobel Peace Prize versus the Nobel Prize for Literature. So No, because I don't know what your example is trying to pull. Like, so what, because, just so explain it better. Would you agree that the Nobel Pre Peace Prize is a prize that you give to somebody who has uh, achieved something in a moral domain, and the Nobel Prize for Literature is something that you would uh, give to somebody who has achieved something in a uh, artistic domain, right? And I'm saying that the same basic way that you evaluate both both of those things. So if you give yeah, Donald uh, Trump the, yeah. the the Nobel Peace Prize, people would say, "No, he doesn't deserve the Peace Prize. That's freaking ridiculous." Well, it's be okay. And I'll it's make not it, it's because. And, and if somebody says, "Yeah, but he was determined to be the guy that he is," then it's like, "Okay, fine, but that that's not that doesn't no, detract I know, from but what you're I'm saying." Like I, I think that you're conflating a couple of things. Like, I think there's a equi real equivocation in the way that we're using deserve. And here's what I think. When we're talking about prizes and achievements, 
I think that we use the word deserve to merely mean does the magnitude or greatness of their output match the criteria for this prize? So imagine that I created two computer programs and I said, let's see which one is actually the best at solving a problem. And so I say, computer program A and computer program B, they're put to the test. I say, computer program A actually did a better job. It deserves to win this competition. I'm using the word deserves, I think, in the same way that we're using the word deserves for Bob Dylan winning the Literature Prize. I think we use it in the same way for the Peace Prize. We're making a judgment that their output, that their product actually was valuable, and it, was, it resulted from them causally. Right. And I think that when we're making a moral judgment, we're asking a further question. First, did it result from them? And second, could they have ha exerted any control over whether or not they did it? I guess the Nobel Peace Prize is in some ways plays into your hand because it's a prize that you're awarding for a specific kind of body of work. But That's we why do I think make, character judgments are better. We do know. make character judgments that about people all the time, right? Like, I don't know, like it just seems right to me, like when you're coming up with who do you think right now is the most blameworthy politician right now you are going to you're going to make those judgments and it's just completely beside the point whether they have libertarian or whether anybody has libertarian free will like or not when but, you're but when you're making those judgments right like, I, I mean i i don't like if you're really sticking to the words praiseworthy and blameworthy like you know then it, Who are the, uh, that's why I keep resisting most libertarian free will, but I, I mean just like freedom. Let's just say freedom. I actually don't think freedom is important when you're evaluating like the greatness of, of someone's works. That's why consequentialists can actually say like that was a great person. They no, did, no, no. They don't when, when you say people appeal to conditions of local agency, I agree. But then even in art and, and sports, we do that, too. We do that, too. We just do it to a lesser degree. Like, no, we I'm care about those things to a lesser degree. All I'm saying is that there, I don't—now uh, I'm even more convinced that I don't think there is any work being done by comparing aesthetics and athletics to moral judgments. Like, I don't think that that is convincing anybody who believes in dessert. Uh, in like some ultimate libertarian sense that it doesn't matter because I don't think they're using those. Like, I think they just, they're the out for the libertarian or for the uh, incompatibilist. The out is just to say, no, yeah, it's just, it's different. That one's a judgment of value. I give a shit whether or not they control it. Like, uh, but that's like, not I true because you sometimes do give a shit with an artist or a, uh, an athlete. Yeah. <laughs> like, All right. <laughs> so, Paul Russell, I'm sorry, but Dave doesn't think you're a sexy human. You know, I here's where I agree. I agree that actually um, that we use different standards for valuing athletic um, achievement. I just think that it's because usually that's the domain of value and praise. And I think that that is actually a good way to capture our judgments of moral praise. I think that they're fundamentally different. And I think that our judgments of moral character also are resistant to any undermining of, like, local control. I just think that, like, in specific kinds of blame and punishment judgments, we actually really do care how much control somebody had over it. I, I agree with you, though, that normal people don't give a rat's ass about, like, metaphysical libertarianism. 
But I do think that they make a very different set of judgments about local control that just it's just fundamentally different. I, does that make sense? Uh, yeah, it does. I, I like like some of our arguments. I'm not sure to what extent we disagree radically on this. And like, I, and because and I, I agree with you about that, like that point that right. it's that that local control matters more. I you seem to think it's a different in difference in kind, though. Like you're evaluating completely so. different things. I guess whereas so, I right. think we're de- evaluating the same kind of thing. But local control matters more in morality than it does when you're evaluating, you know, like a Hall of Fame. You, you're yeah. not you're evaluating like the person you're evaluating. Yeah. You are evaluating the person, right? Like uh, if, when deciding whether to put them in the Hall of Fame. Well, you're evaluating. I mean, that's interesting because I think you're evaluating the person qua athlete. Right. And I think that that's why it becomes hard for us to say, like, Such a you know, is, is P. <laughs> <laughs> is Pete is Pete who, who's Qua? <laughs> um, uh, is Pete Rose a Hall of Famer? Right. I think the only reason that's an interesting question is because we have two really really conflicting views. Like clearly, he deserves as a player to be right, right? but clearly also he's a bad person um, and probably shouldn't well, I don't have know done if those that's things. Clear. Well, no, but but like yeah, yeah, but like he shouldn't have done the things that he did. Yeah. Um, but if you did tell me that, in fact, Pete Rose um, had like a tumor that caused him to do like gamble, then I'd yeah. be like, oh, all right, then just clearly, like, yeah, then that's fine. Well, so yeah, if it was I, a tumor I, that caused him to be a great hitter, I'd be like, that's irrelevant. But again, that's like our moral judgments are the same. You're sort of evaluating no, saying, people like t- in the context of these other factors and yes you can find out new information that makes you devalue some of those factors or make you think those aren't as important anymore but like that's across domains right but i guess is don't you catch the intuition that if a tumor caused pete rose to be a great hitter it wouldn't change our our judgment of whether he deserves to be in the hall of fame but if a tumor caused him to be like a compulsive gambler we would say that he probably deserves our sympathy rather than our blame well, like so, Lou Gehrig. Let's. I mean, he played long enough. He's clear Hall of Famer. But let's say that he only was able to play seven years. He was great. He was like, you know, he was amazing uh, as he was in his peak. But then he got the disease that was subsequently named after him. It, I think it's people would take that into account when they like. It's not like he, that they would view him differently than somebody who just kind of fizzled out after seven years. You think so? I I think that you you meet a criteria, right? I think that like you meet a criteria in achievement, and whether or not you met that criteria might matter. But I think whether like like if you, you if you just like you know after a year have a heart attack even though you had like the best year of your life i don't think anybody's gonna have this, this not after you right after a year yes after seven years right like, but that's why i think like that, that a year isn't enough to be a hall of famer no matter like what but you because do. you couldn't have achieved as much right because the criteria is your output not right like like you know but I'm saying um, take seven years of a player that like Lou Gehrig that just dies versus se- someone who just decides to retire. Like, it's too hard for me. I don't want to like I think people would view those two people differently. They like, would view those two people differently. But would yeah. they actually I, I think it would actually I think it would be a reason for people to uh, wait. I'm, I'm, I'm in the middle of a recording. 
No, but I, before I know whether to blame her, I have to know whether she had libertarian free will. <laughs> no, you just need to know whether she had local control in a way that if she <laughs> if she actually came and dropped a hundred dollars on you, you wouldn't give a rat's ass whether she had local control. <laughs> there. Q- All right. QED. QED. All right. All right. Join us next time. We might do the episode chosen by our Patreon subscribers. Uh, and we'll s- yeah, that's it. <laughs> We've talked enough. <laughs> Jesus what a Christ. Tease. <laughs> Bye. Just a very bad wizard.